So last night I began a series of talks on the five uh, spiritual faculties, the five mm-hmm. controlling faculties, and they are the activities of mind that are most uh, determinant of our development of uh, awareness and the development of wisdom. And as I mentioned, there are five of them. Uh, the first I spoke about last night is uh, sada, often translated as faith, but as a as a verb, it is really trusting, trusting or having confidence in uh, the teachings, uh, the value of the path, uh, one's own uh, capacity, the teacher possibly, and to the extent that we. Uh, feel some faith, confidence, uh, interest even, uh, then we're willing to make an effort. And uh, effort is the second uh, of the faculties uh, that I'll be speaking about tonight. But just to round out the five, through this effort, whatever effort we make, uh, we, we develop or we remember more frequently to recognize the present moment, uh, both in uh, activities and speaking and just in our mind. And we become, let's say, more mindful or more continuity to mindfulness or awareness. And with that continuity of awareness, then the mind stabilizes. We're not so easily jerked around. We don't get so easily overwhelmed with uh, reactive states of mind, and when the mind is not so uh, labile and just kind of easily jerked around and, and overwhelmed, then it steadies, it stabilizes. And the stable mind really sees things as they really are, sees into the inner nature, uh, if you will, of experience. And this understanding becomes wisdom as we live with this understanding. With greater wisdom, we feel more confident, we feel more faith, we're more trusting, we make more effort. And in this way, the five faculties grow cyclically, incrementally, due to cause and effect. Each is the cause giving rise to the next. And it's not a matter, you know, it's, it's not a matter of a personal attribute or personal capacity or personal anything. It's like, if we do the work, it'll happen. You know, and, it's, and just because we don't, right now, we don't have a mature uh, awareness or, or we're not that continuous, we may have shaky faith at times, uh, doesn't mean that we can't train the mind to develop these five faculties, which is what we're doing. So tonight I want to speak about uh, effort, but effort, is, it, it's really interesting talking about effort. If I talk about effort, it feels like one kind of activity, you know, clench your fist, grit your teeth, and effort. And if I talk about the energy needed to be aware, how much does that take? You know, really, I mean, just... Feel the sensations in your right hand. Got it? How much energy did that take? And what kind of effort was that? It was really the effort of precision, uh, intention, uh, clarity. It's not the effort of muscular uh, efforting, striving. And so, when I speak about right effort or effort, I want to coach it in the language of, yes, it's effort, but it's really about marshalling the energy that's required in each moment to be aware. That's all. And to the extent that it's uh, developed, or to the extent that we, we grow in understanding what right effort is and what the right energy is for this particular kind of experience, 
it just becomes a an enduring and almost just a persevering quality of mind. Not persevering in the grim, persevering way, but just it's just available with whatever experience arises. So it is said, or some have said, that right effort uh, is the topic that the Buddha spoke most about, more than any other topic in all of his teachings. He spoke more about right effort. And it has a pretty noble pedigree, if you will, in the Dharma, because it is right effort is one of the eight of the Eightfold Path factors. It's one of the ten paramis, which are the wholesome qualities of mind that, uh, when developed, provide the foundation for liberating insight. It's one of the seven factors of awakening, seven factors of alignment, one of the uh, energizing, one of the three energizing factors. It's one of the five powers. It's one of the five faculties. It's one of the four means of accomplishing one's purpose. And it's all four of the four right efforts. So that's, you know, for, for you know, B.A., M.A., Ph.D., plus, you know, it's, it's, got, it's got a pretty good pedigree there. So, you know, we should at least pay some attention to it. And I've wondered now, why, why did the Buddha have to, why did the Buddha have to speak so much about right effort? And there's a couple um, suggestions come to my mind. One is, this that we are attempting to do, to wake up, to really wake up to this mind and this life of a human being and the, um, the conditioning that we have all endured that leads to suffering, and to, to, to wake up to that, disentangle and stop suffering. This, this is a pretty far-reaching goal. This is, this is, this is pretty far-reaching. Well, I can't imagine anything more far-reaching. And to think that it's, uh, you know, you don't come on a, uh, a week-long retreat and uh, get the job done. Or at least most of us don't. You never know. And uh, so it's pretty far-reaching. And along the way, there are just infinite number of quagmires, pits, challenges, problems, issues, things that we have to confront. And we have to kind of find the right effort to approach, deal with, sustain, uh, to, to accommodate all of that. And the other thing is, you know, nothing is accomplished without effort. You can't, you can't make bread if you don't make an effort. You certainly can't write a book and you can't raise a child without a lot of effort. So, effort is the root of all accomplishments, all achievements, all uh, completions, let's say. And I think that there's there's a place here to talk about the, the power of resolve, which is another quality of mind, that you know, we start a lot of things in life we, we, we start a lot of projects, we start a lot of relationships, we start a lot of creative ideas. But how many do we actually finish? I mean, really finish. Wrap it up, done. And that's something that, you know, we have maybe as a habit where we're willing to start, but easily abandoned. And so... Resolve is one of those paramis, one of those qualities of mind that is developed in this path of awakening necessary for uh, awakening to the liberating truth. <clears throat> the other thing I've noticed is that almost all of us struggle at times to find the right effort, to find a balanced effort, to find the way to approach and... Uh, accommodate and deal with uh, the great variety of situations we find ourselves in, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and so, you know, we try often many different ways 
for for dealing with some of the conditions that we meet. But the the net result is it is through making wrong effort that we get the most colorful stories about practice. (laughs) Because, you know, how do you find the middle way? You go to one extreme on the left, and you find out that's not going to work. You go to the other extreme on the right, and you find out that's not going to work. But, you know, in in the meantime, you've crossed the middle somewhere. And eventually we'll find that place, we'll recognize that place as, oh, this is, this is the middle way that's necessary. And so we can't honestly say that there's any consensus on what right effort is for anyone at any particular time. But it's up to each one of us to uh, discover, to be willing to experiment, really, and to discover for ourselves what right effort is for us, for now, in this situation. I mentioned Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master, either in the hall or in one of my groups today. And he says, <clears throat> he was challenged by someone who heard him giving different instructions to different people. And he says, I know the path very well. Sometimes I see somebody going down the path and they're about to fall in the ditch on the left. And I say, go right, go right. And another time, I'll see somebody going down the path and they're about to wander off into the ditch on the right. And I say, go left, go left. And anybody who's listening to me speak like that would think I'm contradicting myself. But actually, what he's doing is offering the right guidance for that person at that time. And so you probably have noticed already that uh, you can... Dharma instruction contains a lot of paradoxical, seemingly impossible, even contradictory uh, instructions. Relax, pay attention. Okay. Right. Which one would you like me to do first? Well, both at once. And so, it's for each one of us to find out, to, to, to see how we do that. You know, and really, not to come up with a, something muddled in the middle, but actually a clear distinctive, relax, and pay attention. Not some muffled, muddle in the middle. Okay. So the Bodhisattva, Prince Siddhartha, born nearly 2,600 years ago into what was considered then a pretty royal family, uh, lived for his first 29 years uh, the life of luxury of a prince. And it is said, and this is, you know, mythological at best, uh, that, you know, he just never never knew any suffering, never saw any anything suffer, and didn't suffer himself. He just had all of his needs and attention and pleasures that just kept him totally satisfied and preoccupied all the time. But his karmic destiny was not to just indulge his life away in the palace. Um, he felt moved at some point to, as we say, to leave the confines of his father's palace and he wandered out into the village. Now, what this really means is, you know, um, we, are, we are raised and brought up and raised in a family, in a culture, in a, in a way of understanding, a way of being with a lot of assumptions and uh, a purpose and a meaning and a value to life. And, and we learn that from our family, culture, education. But to step outside of that is very difficult. To find a way to get outside of that, to really see for yourself the dimensions of a human life is almost impossible. And yet it was the Bodhisattva's karmic aspiration to do that. And at some point said he went outside the father's, his father's realm of protection, and he he saw four things. They're called heavenly messengers. Because they woke him up to something greater than what he had known up to that point. He saw an elderly person, he saw a sick person, and he saw a corpse. And he'd never known that. He'd never experienced that in the palace. He didn't know, I mean, this is the myth. (laughs) <laughs> what it means is he actually got it, he grokked it somehow, that, you know what, 
This is a condition that we're all living with. We grow old, we get sick, and we die. Now, you all know that. Right? Really? We know it up here. No, do you know it in here? And that's, that's what it means when the, when the Bodhisattva saw. He saw with his wisdom eye. He saw with wisdom that, well, this is the condition that we're all living with. And it aroused in him this urgency to understand and how to be free of that kind of suffering. We were talking earlier this afternoon about Samvega, the spiritual urgency to to understand what is beyond your kind of comprehension. And in his urgency to like, what's this all about? How am I going to how am I going to get free of this suffering, this this condition of aging, sickness, and death? He also saw the fourth heavenly messenger which was a renunciate, someone who was uh, living quite simply, peacefully, uh, in the midst of this life, and quite at ease with, apparently, the conditions of aging, sickness, and death. And so it gave him this idea that there's, there's a way. You know, and so he left the palace, and then undertook the spiritual disciplines of his day, which were very ascetic, actually. The, uh, the, the belief in that time was that the more you suffered, <laughs> the more tortured you, your body, uh, the more likely you could disentangle your mind from the body and, and be liberated. And he, you know, when you read about the practices that he undertook for six years, you, you wouldn't want to do this. It is really rigorous. And, you know, at, at the point of almost death, where he was just emaciated and totally depleted and his hair was falling out and just was torturing the body to try to liberate the mind, he had a memory. He remembered when he was a young boy sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree watching his father ritually plow a field in the spring, you know, for a bountiful harvest. And while doing that, he was in a, he was just kind of interested and relaxed and in the shade of a tree, and he spontaneously entered an exalted state of mind, some kind of jhana or some kind of absorption. Absorption in a state of interest, interested tranquility or tranquilized interest, or however you want to understand it, but a balance of tranquility and interest that allowed his mind to just, I don't know if you'd call it expand or absorb or at least to reach some uh, exalted state. And he had this memory and he said, hmm, I wonder if there's a message here on how to practice, how to find this way to the end of suffering. Because it happened to him so spontaneously as a young boy and now he was struggling for six years to <coughs> seemingly achieve something of the similar sort, but was having a very difficult time with it. And so, at first he mistrusted his, his own perception. He thought, no, no, that much calm enjoyment has got to be bad, because that was the condi- that was the condition. You know, if you're enjoying life, if you're if you're if your body's comfortable and then, you know, that's, that's not good. That's not the way. And so he had to confront his, well, the teachings of his day about spiritual practice. And then he said, you know, this isn't indulging in anything harmful. It's not unskillful. And so he then changed his practice, found the middle way, and before too long, liberated his mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. Because he found the middle way somewhere between the indulgence and the asceticism of his early years. And his middle path is really a path of not indulging and not denying, neither aggressive nor passive, 
but rather receptive and responsive rather than reactive, where there's a balance of energy, tranquility, calm, investigation, alert. And as the way our uh, daughter uh, encouraged us, Kamala and I, when we were going Christmas shopping one, one year, as she was a teenager, and she said, now, now, Mom, remember, focus. <laughs> and Dad, remember, float. <laughs> because, you know, that's just the opposite of what we are, you know. And our practice is somewhere between focus and float. If we just float along, we're not going to get there. If we just focus too hard, we're not going to get there either. But if there's this balance between float and focus, maybe. At least we got the shopping done. <laughs> anyway, so there's these, these, you know, the Buddha talks about these four right efforts. So I'll mention them and then I'm going to speak about each one. And the first is to avoid unwholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. The second is to overcome those unwholesome mental states that have arisen. The third is to develop wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. And the fourth is to sustain or to nourish wholesome mental states that have already arisen. Now that's a, that's a mouthful. And let me put this into English that you can understand. It all revolves around wholesome and unwholesome. Skillful and unskillful. And we need to define what they mean to in the Buddha's teachings because wholesome and unwholesome sounds awfully puritanical or something. But it's really, wholesome is those activities, those beliefs, those uh, practices, those mental states, the wholesome ones, that lead to the end of suffering or lessening suffering. And the unwholesome mental states are those mental states and thoughts and behaviors and beliefs that lead to more suffering for oneself and others. So that's the bottom line for the Buddha. The Buddha's uh, perspective is, does this lead to suffering or does it lead to the end of suffering? And when the Buddha was asked, what does he teach? That's what he said. I teach just one thing. Suffering and the end of suffering. Sounds like two things, but actually, if you understand suffering, you understand the end of suffering. That's all he taught. And I want to speak about them because we will have occasion on our journey of awakening to uh, need all four of them uh, as we learn to monitor our own practice and to decide for ourselves what, what effort we need to make. So the first right effort is to avoid those unwholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. And that means, um, you know, don't associate with, don't go to those places, don't engage in the behaviors, the thoughts, or engage with the people that bring out the worst in you. Sounds easy enough. Just don't turn on your phone. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll be all right. But, I mean, that's, that's what it gets down to. It's like, Oh, how do we... I mean, we can we can just save ourselves so much hassle and so much turmoil and so much inner conflict if we just avoid, as much as we can, those people, places, behaviors, things that cause us to have an unskillful, unwholesome reaction. Now, this this was the Buddha's first, first injunction. It's like, hey, don't go there. Don't go there. It's not saying, you know, go to every place that's going to challenge you in order for you to learn how to deal with these difficult things. It's just, first, just like, don't go there. Avoid it. I was listening to um, NPR, some poet reading her stuff or commenting about other poems, and one line caught my attention when she said, uh, Your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. Yeah, our mind, our mind has dangerous neighborhoods in it. We have all kinds of uh, places where we can really get entangled in trouble. We can have all kinds of unskillful, unwholesome 
thoughts, memories, plans, all kinds of things. So when we don't go there alone, means take your mindfulness with you. When you go rummaging around in the attics of your mind, or the cellars of your mind, take your mindfulness with you. So that you really keep an eye on what it is that you're seeing, so that you don't get bushwhacked with some unwholesomeness. Upandita suggests practicing, not only Upandita, but many, many teachers suggest practicing in a way to guard your sense doors. Meaning, just be careful what you look at, be careful what you listen to, be careful what you uh, engage with, in your, with your mind, with your sense doors, because whatever you let in is in there forever. Forever. If it's not in there yet, don't let it in. If it's going to be that disturbing or that, you know, resulting in some kind of suffering. So he says to, you know, when, and we've all had this experience, you know when you're sick, you know, you've got a fever and you're sick, you're achy and you're not hungry and you just, you know, you, you don't want to deal with anything. It's just kind of like, you're not interested in activity or talking or eating or, or looking or getting, you're not watching movies, you're not doing, you just kind of want to be, you're just very sensitive and, and you just want to attend to this kind of being aware. So he says, sometimes practice like you're sick, blind, deaf, lame. Not, not, you know, I mean, just so that you, you, you practice in that way where you just attend to the inner life rather than just kind of splashing yourself all over the outer, the outer life. So when you guard your senses, it's really you're guarding your mind. You're guarding with your mind. You know, you're not saying you're not you're not putting on blinders so that you don't see, but you're guarding your senses so that when you see what you see, you know that you're seeing, and you know if there's a reaction of desire, or aversion, or judgment, or fear, because you're guarding your sense doors with your mind. You're paying attention to the mind's uh, reaction relationship to what you see, what you hear, what you feel, what you think. So, one of these, one of the uh, images of this first right effort is the, the guards at Buckingham Palace. You know the guards at Buckingham Palace? Totally passive, totally still, unblinking, not engaging in anything, we think. But they're very attentive, they're very alert, they're very vigilant, right? What kind of energy does that take? If you're stiff and kind of stiff and rigid and hypervigilant, you'll be exhausted in no time. On the other hand, if you're too relaxed and if it's kind of like lackadaisical, you'll also drift off and won't be doing your job. But it's this place of just being present, still, still inside, still outside, not, not looking for anything in particular, but just awake and aware, alert. Noticing everything. So, in some ways, we need to uh, cultivate this kind of um, this spirit of repetition in our practice, because so much of what we are aware of in life, or what we experience in life, and what we certainly experience in practice, is just repetitive. It's recurring. It happens again and again. And how many more breaths do we have to take this lifetime? How many more times? How many more times are we going to brush our teeth? How many more times are we going to take a shower, go to the toilet? I mean, just say, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of more times we still got to do this. If we made it a practice to be aware of these recurring, have a real spirit of, you know, be willing to engage in very repetitive things, <coughs> you'd have a lot of time for practice every day. <laughs> those things that you do every day. Just make those the place of your awareness practice. I'm reminded that Krishnamurti uh, uh, commented in this way. He said, I, I've done yoga every day for decades. I do yoga every day. I've never let it become a habit. That means 
you know, there's there's presence of mind there, not just kind of like doing things out of kind of rote memory, but like full presence of mind with his yoga practice every day. So can we do that with the ordinary things of our life? Every time you come in and make your nest for sitting down, can you be present for it? When you get to the lobby and you have to put on your shoes or slippers or boots or whatever you have, can you do it as if it's the first time? When you reach for the door handle, can you feel that door for the first time, every time? That's the kind of um, energy we're talking about, the kind of effort we're talking about. It's not, you can see, it's not muscular, it's not grim, it's not striving, struggling. It's just very gentle, very present, very, just keep things simple. So, all this repetition, you know, sometimes we use an object like the breath. And we pay attention to breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. How many times do you have to pay attention before you actually know what's going on? Well, every breath is different, isn't it? Huh. Why why do we use something like the breath? Why do we why do we encourage paying attention to recurring and familiar events over and over again? Well, it's like you know when you have a knife and a whetstone or an oil stone and you need to sharpen the knife, you can learn how to you know, if you hold the you put the right amount of oil or water on the stone and you hold the blade at a certain angle and you rub it a certain way, you can put a very fine edge on that blade, right? And if you're good at it, you can, you can do that. You can have a really sharp blade. And why do you learn how to do that, to be so precise, the right pressure, the right angle, the right amount of oil? Is it so that you can just keep doing that kind of until you grind that blade right down to nothing? No. It's so that you can actually use that blade to cut what you want, cleanly. Same with our mind. We use the recurring object to really sharpen our attention, to really get a fine edge to our attention, so that we really see and can dis- discern the difference from one breath to the next. Why? <clears throat> so that we can cut through the illusions and the chatter about our life. It's that kind of attention that is going to see this is the way it is, rather than be carried away on a stream of thought about the way we think it is. That's why we sharpen our attention. So when I was first starting to practice with uh, Saito Upandita, and some of you have heard, but for those of you who haven't, uh, he was the, the abbot of a, a monastery in, uh, in Burma that taught the Mahasi Saiba method of practice. And he's, he came to the West in 1984 for the first time and to teach some uh, Westerners. And he's very demanding. It's just, he just has a way of just getting more out of you than you could imagine ever putting out. But nevertheless, he, he just, that's his way of work. And um, so... I was invited to this course. It was a three-month course for 20, 20 students, all of whom were, were either teachers or going to be teachers, except me. I was on the board of directors at the Meditation Center, so they invited me just as kind of a consolation, I guess. But anyway, so I was doing the practice. And I, I was doing my best. I was sincere. I was intent. I was continuous. But I was hopeless. <laughs> I was a really, really slow learner. So... Sidar heard that my name was Armstrong. So Armstrong, he got a big kick out of having a name Armstrong. And every time I would commit, I had to see him every day uh, to report and practice for three months. And every day I'd go in and he'd say, Hmm, Armstrong, mind strong, mind strong. Is your mind strong today? I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I said, so what do you mean mind strong? <laughs> What's a strong mind anyway? Well, what he meant was, is your mind strong enough to be with what's actually coming up? So that when pain comes up in the body, or pain comes up in the heart, or some emotional drama arises, is the mind strong enough to be with it? Because it takes, and it's not, it's not forceful, it's just, is the mind steady? Is the mind willing? 
Is the mind clear? Is the mind continuous? Oh, so is your mind strong? So that's, that's really what we're looking for, is this, these qualities to the attention, through the awareness, is continuity, sensitivity, precision, uh, more than, you know, kind of uh, energeticness. So that's the first great effort, to simplify our life, avoid what might cause uh, unskillful, unwholesome states of mind to arise. The second is the effort required to deal with unwholesome states that already have arisen. Because sometimes, as you know, they just they just arise, or we get entangled in anger, fear, jealousy, desire, rage, judgment. You know, the the, the list is endless, right? And they just, you know, we have we have habits, or we have kind of default settings of our tendency to indulge in these uh, dysfunctional states of mind, dysfunctional strategies, I think, for dealing with some of the difficulties in life. And uh, when they arise, then we have to do something about it. Or as Sayadaw Utejaniya says, you know, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Meaning, what comes into the mind, well, you don't get to pick and choose. But once it has arrived in the mind, then you got to do something with it. And if you don't, if you if you're skillful, you'll work with it with awareness and understanding. And if you're not, you'll just act it out in some habitual, reactive way. Now, what he means is that you know we can't go around in life avoiding all those people, places, and things that you know provoke us. We don't even know who they are or what they are. And so we're not trying to avoid situations in life. Yes, the ones that we know about, of course, but we're not living in a cave trying to avoid anything that might ruffle our feathers. Okay, so we have these difficult mental states that arise, and with a little bit of practice, as we've been doing here today, uh, they arrive with enhanced clarity. You know, and as the mind gets calmer and more aware, it gets more powerful, it sees things more clearly. And so when they arise, there's no denying. It's, they're, they're, they, they show up inflamed. But it's amazing how habituated we are to putting up with torturous states of mind. You know, I, don't know what, I don't know what you had to put up with today. Impatience, self-judgment, frustration, disappointment chagrin, anger, irritation, depression, hopelessness, fear, anything else? <laughs> no. and, and, and we, you know, we just, we take it for granted. It's, it's like, well, it's who we are. You know, it's almost as if that's the way I am and I can't do anything about it. But actually, the Buddha said, the mind, by nature, is radiant and pure. It is because of visiting forces known as these torments that we suffer. So, whenever you suffer today, with whatever state of mind, impatience, you know, fear, frustration, disappointment, your mind was being visited by this tormented state. That's all. You, know, you didn't invite it. You didn't want it. You can't get rid of it. But you have to deal with it. So that's the second effort, is how to deal with these uh, unexpected, or no, we shouldn't say unexpected, we, we, we should expect them. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna visit. But uh, these unpleasant or unwholesome visitors to the mind. I think the attitude of mind most skillful for working with these um, Visitors to the mind. There's a few of them. First is to first we have to recognize them, and that's that's difficult because we're so habituated to them. We they've arisen so often. We just take them for granted. Uh, it feels like my personality is I'm, I have an aversive personality, or uh, as I as I often say, I I don't think I was born with a patience gene, and just it's just not there. 
you know, impatience is my default setting for everything. Now, I'm working on it, but it's still there. Okay. So, to recognize what is so familiar is actually quite difficult. You know, we just indulge it, you know, with thoughts. You know, we rant, and internally we rant and complain and whinge and whine and prefer and, you know, blah, 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 you know, and eventually it goes away. We get tired or something. But that's not dealing with it. That's just feeding it. And so to be able to recognize these states of mind when they arise is, is initially quite a challenge. And the second thing we do is usually judge ourselves mercilessly for, for feeling that way. So once we recognize them, we need to relax and, and just, okay, this is the way it is. Rather than just trying to get rid of it, or trying to ignore it, or trying to minimize it, or denying it. You know, we recognize, we acknowledge, and relax the judgment around it, so that we can begin to, to work with it. And then, um, you know, the, the, the challenge is, how do we sustain our interest in this for as long as it lasts? Because it comes, it's conditioned, it's going to last for a while, maybe a short while, maybe a long while. But nevertheless, we have to we have to arouse the uh, courage, the interest to sustain our awareness of it for as long as it's there. And this requires that we, first of all, acknowledge it, rec- recognize it, acknowledge it, and open to it. Now, there's a story going on about this. You know, when we get frustrated, we have a story. We have a narrative of my frustration. We have a narrative of my fear. We have a narrative of my depression. We have a narrative of whatever. But the story just goes on and on and on and on. It can go on for decades. But the actual experience of that state of mind doesn't. It just lasts for a period of time. And so our task, the second right effort, is to be willing to sustain the energy an interest to feel into and be with, to open to and feel what this mental state actually feels like. We know the story. We know what it feels like maybe in the body. You know, when we get angry, we feel clenched and tight. When we feel ashamed, we feel this. When we feel bored, we feel that. When we feel depressed, we've got a heavy head. Okay, so we know what it feels like physically, but what does it feel like mentally? What What does it feel like in the mind? Because that's where the hook is. Until we can have the interest and have the understanding, this is this is this is the part of awakening. This is this is the path of awakening is to sustain your interest and actually feel into these states of mind. Now, I, I will tell you something: they're all unpleasant. They're unpleasant. But we've experienced a lot of unpleasantness already in our life. We shouldn't be afraid of unpleasantness. We should actually be willing, you know, even expect it. But it's difficult. Mostly we, we want to avoid it, we want to deny it, we want to get rid of it, we want to fix it. Or we judge ourselves, there's something wrong with me, that I'm feeling something unpleasant. So you can see we've got some, we've got some very deep conditioning around some beliefs and assumptions about how it should be, what it's like that have to be confronted. And it's, 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 we will meet these assumptions, we will meet these false beliefs as we try to sustain the energy to feel what fear actually feels like. So, the image I have of this kind of energy is being a scientist. And we are. We're, we're scientists of this human condition. It's like, and what do scientists do? They observe things with a kind of a dispassionate, you know, interested, but not personalized interest. What's going on? And so that's that's our challenge. Can we can we marshal the interest in the energy to just sustain our attention on this state of mind, not getting caught in the story? not drifting off, not judging ourselves, but just stay there with it so that we can understand its nature. What is the nature of desire? What is the nature of fear? 
What is the nature of depression? Because until we know, we'll never be free. Now we can get, we can momentarily get rid of any of these things. Just turn your attention away, or practice some antidote. You know, if you're if you're angry, you've got some form of aversion. You can always practice loving kindness and get some relief, immediate relief. You're in the blame game. You can practice forgiveness. If you're in doubt, you can you can reflect on uh, others' practice that inspires confidence. There's ways of dealing with it, kind of as a symptom. But the roots of that unwholesome state of mind are still in there. And this is what we're the Pasana is looking at is how to understand the nature of these states of mind. And for this we need uh, you know the real steady sustaining energy that's willing to feel uncomfortable or feel unpleasantness with full awareness. That's all. I mean did, did you feel unpleasantness today? Yeah. But now I'm asking you to just turn to it with full acceptance rather than <laughs> weeping and whining complaining and like <clears throat> Okay? So that's that's what's required. But that takes you know, that kind of energy is is not our that's not our conditioning. We have to we have to train ourselves to be willing. But if we understand why we're doing it, then we can learn. We we can we can actually learn how to sustain our energy in the face of unpleasantness. So, I thought that, I mean, when I went to the monastery in Burma, you know, it's a rigorous place. Alternate hours of sitting and walking, 20 hours a day, you have four hours to sleep. You can, as Supandiri used to say, you can sleep as much as you like between 11 and 3. And he wasn't kidding either. And so I thought, well, if sitting an hour is good, sitting an hour and a half must be better. Well, as soon as I was comfortable sitting comfortable, well, since I could bear sitting an hour, I went up to this hour and a half. After I could bear sitting an hour and a half, I went up to two, to three, to four. I was heading to, you know, but every day I had to go report to Bandita what my experience was, and I was going in with these ex- very elaborate, intimate details of excruciating pain. <laughs> I mean, it was just like unbelievable pain. Because I thought stamina was kind of was was the practice. I was deluded, but anyway, I thought it was. And then after a couple of weeks of this, you know, where I was, you know, hey, hey, when you're only sitting four hours, five, four hours at a time, you only have to sit a couple times a day. You, know, you sit down, you get up four or five hours later, and walk for a little bit, and sit down again, and the day's over. But so I was giving these reports. And after a couple of weeks, Upandita, he says to me one day, he says, do you know why you have so much pain? I said, no, but I'd really like to know why. He says, you sit too long. (laughs) 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 But what he was saying is like, that's not balanced energy. That's not balanced effort. That's like way off the ballpark. And so, he said, you don't ever have to sit more than an hour. And you sit for an hour. And walk for an hour. Sit for an hour. It's like finding a balance. You know, just forceful effort is not going to do it. Don Juan, who taught Carlos Castaneda everything he knew that was of value, uh, one of my spiritual guides from the last century, he says, the ordinary man or woman sees life's events as either blessings or curses. But the spiritual warrior sees every experience as an opportunity to grow in strength, knowledge, and wisdom. And that's our journey. How can we acknowledge this moment's experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, familiar or not, whether we want it or not, like it or not, how can we see it as Rather than, oh, this is a blessing, this is so great, or this is a curse because this is terrible. How can we see it as, ah, this is an opportunity to learn something, to grow in, you know, the this, this strength of mind that can be with and can learn from and grow in wisdom with every experience. That's the kind of energy we're looking for in this practice. 
The third right effort is to develop those wholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. And there's lots of them. You know, there's, there's just many uh, wholesome qualities of mind, whether it's calm, gratitude, tranquility, balanced mind, uh, humility, uh, docility, being willing to learn, uh, generosity, patience. And while we, while we know all of them, and we all have some maybe default level of generosity and compassion and uh, patience within our personality even, we know there's room for improvement. And so what the Buddha is suggesting here is, yeah, cultivate those <coughs> different states of mind that are not yet fully developed. When you find that, oh, you still get tripped up and get caught in impatience or miserliness or jealousy or envy or self-pity or whatever. Hey, cultivate. Take the opportunity to cultivate. And, you know, this, this journey of awakening is not just awakening to the past and all, all the conditioning. It's to co-create the future. You know, we are architects of the future, or co-architects, really. And so, if we, if we understand this, then we can actively cultivate the wholesome states of mind, which will be, which will you know, gradually develop. It's not just dealing with difficult stuff. And this, you know, this journey of awakening, or this, the, the foundation for awakening, is all the wholesome qualities of mind, anything you can think of. That's why any practice that you do, any kind of practice, if it's calming or clarifying or energizing, tranquilizing, whatever, it's good. Because we're going to need the fully all of those wholesome states of mind fully developed. Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, great Tibetan uh, teacher of the last century, says, a crystal takes on the color upon which it is placed, whether it's white, yellow, red, or black. Likewise, the people you spend your time with, whether their influence is good or bad, will make a huge difference in the direction your life and practice takes. Spending your time with spiritual friends will fill you with love for all beings and will help you to see how negative attachment and hatred really are. And being with such friends and following their example will naturally imbue you with their good qualities, just as all the birds flying around a golden mountain are bathed in its golden radiance. We have a choice in life. We have a lot of choices in life. How do we spend our time? What is it that's at the top of our priority list? <coughs> you know? And you know, this is where we can make the choices to cultivate the wholesome states of mind. You know, as the Buddha also said, you know, it's easy to do that which is of no real value to yourself. It's really hard to do that which is of value. Which is growthful. But once we see, you know, this condition that we're living in <coughs> with clear eyes, we can only aspire, we can only want to aspire to be free of free of suffering and cultivate wholesome states of mind. Not even risen is one way. But it takes some faith to make that effort. It takes some knowledge. We need to know there is a path to be developed. You know, the Noble Eightfold Path is to be developed to free the heart and mind from suffering. And then with that faith and with that knowledge, practice. Any kind of practice of any of those wholesome states of mind. And I think the other requirement of or attitude of mind is being patient. Now, just because we hear of the possibility doesn't mean it's within our grasp. And so, quite often, we get started on this journey and we get impatient. It's just not moving fast enough. You know, we want more results. We want to, you know, we just want, we just want, you know, this is our conditioning. We just want what we want when we want it. You know, and this path doesn't respond like that. You know, and so, when we have a sense of the 
profundity of what it is we're doing and the amount of time it's taken to get here, then we have some, some, I can't really say more realistic, but some adjustment in our appraisal of uh, what to expect from the journey. You know, so that, you know, as, as Utejaniya says, you know, we should, we should really consider the development of awareness and wisdom more as a marathon than a sprint. And plan on it taking the rest of your life. Plan on it. Not with a dread, like, oh, no, no, but to, with a, like, yeah, this is it. This is worth doing. I, I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. Whatever it takes. Actually, what else is there to do in life that's of any more value? Really. So, Don Juan, again, had assured Carlos that in order to accomplish the feat of making himself miserable, he had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. And now, Carlos had come to realize that he could work just the same in making himself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, Don Juan had said. We either make ourselves miserable, or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. What are you emphasizing in your life? Making yourself miserable or making yourself strong and free? I mean, it sounds so simple. But it takes, you know, it takes the energy to look, it takes the courage to see and to understand. You know the space shuttle that they send up from Florida somewhere to travel for three or four days and arrive at the space station? You know, they have the onboard computers that kind of guide it to from here to there. And after two or three days, three or four days, it gets there. 98% of the time, the space shuttle is off course. 98% of the time. But it still gets to its destination because of innumerable mid-course corrections. Our practice is just like that. Off course, about 98% of the time. <laughs> but once we see that we're, we're off course, we make an adjustment, we come back to the middle. Then we, you know, we get caught on that end, and we make an adjustment to go left, and we get caught on that end, and make an adjustment to go right, and we will get to the, the goal. We'll get to the space station. So this third right effort of cultivating those wholesome states that have not yet arisen is like planting seeds of wholesomeness. We plant the seeds. Some sprout immediately, some don't sprout for a long time. But they're still there. They're still in the heart. They're still in the mind. And even though you may forget the Dharma, you may forget to be aware, what do you think it is that, that brings you back from some of those long trains of wandering thought in your mind today? How is it that you just, you just suddenly went, plop, oh, here I am, back, shoot. Thank goodness I'm out of that story. One of those seeds that you planted previously <coughs> sprouted, and there was awareness. So we keep planting these seeds, you know, looking for cultivating wholesomeness. Some of them are obviously manifesting, and some are. But the seed and the potential is always there. Forthright effort, just to wrap up this piece, is to support and nourish those wholesome states of mind that have already arisen. Generally we say, you know, when when an unwholesome state of mind arises, if you're if you become aware of it, it weakens that unwholesome state. But if a wholesome state of mind arises, you also want to be aware of that, because being aware of wholesome states of mind strengthens them. So when you feel a little bit of calm, you see a little bit of clarity, you have a little bit of ease, you have a little bit of understanding. You have some patience, you have some love, you have some compassion, you have some responsivity rather than reactivity. Acknowledge that. You don't have to kind of get proud and kind of inflate yourself. Just just to acknowledge, you know, it's kind of calm right now. It's kind of clear right now. I have a lot of interest right now. I feel patient with. I have some endurance for. And by just acknowledging that, it strengthens those wholesome states of mind. So these are the four right efforts. And when we, you know, you notice it, there wasn't really anywhere that I said, 
You had to kind of grit your teeth, you know, clench your fist, and power through. Yes, we do have to be willing to face unpleasantness. But it's better if we relax to do that. So when we, as we work towards the continuity of mindfulness that's present in every moment, we will develop all four of these right efforts. And so the, the, the collective of these four efforts is really the quality of persevering interest. Persevering interest. Be interested in everything that's happening to you, with you, within you, around you. Whether it's familiar or not, whether it's pleasant or not, just be interested. Because with interest we're going to learn. And it's, it's learning that is going to you know, disentangle our hearts from suffering the cause of the suffering. Decondition. The unskillfulness that we've, we've learned. It's not difficult to be aware or mindful, Sadhutasiniya says. It's difficult to maintain it continuously. And for that you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Einstein had a similar thought. He said, I think that people generally overestimate me, but I don't consider myself superior or different from any other person. I am not more gifted than anybody else. I'm just more curious and maybe more patient. If that's what we cultivate for our right effort, interest and patience, we'll do really well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.